0: in the flood, God, you, you will guide us through. Lord, we just thank you again for, worship, for being able to worship you this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to Seabreeze. My name is Ethan. I'm the kids pastor here. Happy Father's Day. Glad you could join us this morning. If you will, go ahead and take out the connection card that's inside of your program, It looks just like this right here, this white piece of paper. And if you are a team member or regular attender, go ahead and begin filling that out with your name and any contact information that may have changed recently. And then to all of our guests, I just want to welcome you. We're so glad that you are here. Uh, This connection card is just our way of being able to communicate with you to keep you up to date on anything that you might be interested in. So go ahead and fill that out with as much information just as you feel comfortable with. At the bottom, it does say, um, how how did you find out about Seabreeze? How did you hear about Seabreeze? We would love to know how you found out. So if you would just uh, fill that out, and then we'll all take a second and do this together. Whenever you wrap that up, if you want to go ahead and turn over your connection card... I want to highlight a few opportunities that you can be involved with on the other side of this connection card. First of all is Robin's Nest. This is the uh, one of our newest local outreach partners here at Seabreeze. It's a great organization. They provide uh, resources, funds, and support for at-risk high school students in the Huntington Beach High School District right here. So um, they have something cool coming up. It's a softball tournament, a fundraiser, and of course Seabreeze, we're sending a team out there to go support them. So that's for for men and for women. If you're interested in that, make sure to check the box on the connection card. We're also going to have a table there for Seabreeze, so um, we can use volunteers for that as well. So make sure to check the box if you're interested in that. And then also our first basketball and cheer camp of the summer is next week. So we do two of these camps throughout the summer. They're a lot of fun. We do them right out here on our own basketball courts. And uh, it's really great for... You know, young kids of all ages, all skill levels, not all ages, K through 8th, sorry 9th graders, Um, but we have coaches from Vanguard University who are actually players on the men's and women's team there come and lead those camps. It's a lot of fun. If you have kids who are interested, you can sign up online, and if you just know someone, friends or family, this is a great thing to invite people to, to participate in this outreach that we do here at Seabreeze. And so we've got uh, definitely a sports theme going on here this morning. The next item in our sports theme is Family Baseball Night, which is coming up. And uh, that's uh, Seabreeze, families from Seabreeze. We're all going to go together, enjoy some time together uh, to the Dodgers and Angels game. So I'm not sure which side you fall, Dodgers or Angels, but uh, most of us in this room fall on one side. So, so I invite you to come to that. That's going to be on July 7th. And you can visit the table out here in the patio to purchase tickets And just a heads up, the tickets do tend to go pretty quickly for this event. So jump on that if that's something you want to participate in. And then finally, all of the young adults, uh, that's ages 18 to late 20s, are invited to this year's Young Adult Summer Trip. They're going to be spending the weekend at a private lake near Bakersfield. I'm from Fresno, so I hear that and I think, oh, Bakersfield. But it's really a fun location. Um, <laughs> it's a fun location. There's this whole water sports complex and a lot of fun events to do up there. So I invite you to check that out. It's also a great way to, uh, you know, just uh, there's going to be some teaching and to explore your faith, to learn more about God, as well as just connect with other young adults here at Seabreeze. So I invite you to that. You can sign up for that on your connection card. And I believe they have a table out in, on the patio as well. So if you're interested in that or anything else, make sure you check the box here again. And then at the end of the message, we're gonna pass around some buckets and you can drop your connection card in those buckets. Also throughout this heroes message series, we're doing a movie ticket giveaway at the end of each message. And we we draw randomly from the connection cards for that. So make sure you drop that in there so you can potentially win a couple of movie tickets. Uh, Now at this point, we're gonna do something special in the service. This morning, we're having a child dedication. So I'd like to ask the families who are participating in that to come on up and join me on stage. And as they're making their way up here, I'll go ahead and introduce them. First of all, we have Annie Unra. You guys can all come up. That's great. Um, we have Annie Unra and her parents, Lance and Crystal. Behind them, we have Savannah Unin And her parents are Joe and Katie. And then Lucas Hersher his parents Jeremy and Amy, and then Richard Johnstone, and his parents are myself, and then my wife Andrea. So, you know, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, we read about one of the purposes that God has for marriage, and one of those purposes is to raise godly children. So that is children who will grow up to know God and to follow his ways. So here at Seabreeze, we give parents the opportunity to make a public commitment to doing this, to raising godly children. And godly children, it's not something that just happens automatically. And there's also no guarantee that, that our efforts to raise godly children will, in fact, produce godly children. But as parents, it is our part to dedicate ourselves to this task. And so today, for uh, the families up here, they're going to make three statements of commitment before you. And then I'm going to ask all of you in the church if you'll make a statement of commitment to them as well. So first of all, first statement is, you are their teachers. So, while other people will certainly come alongside you and support you in teaching them, (laughs) hi. Um, It's the primary responsibility of the parents to to teach their children. So, will you commit to teach your children the truth that is revealed in the Bible and raise them according to it? So, you're their teachers. You are also their advocates. And I think this is really cool. Uh, As parents, we have the privilege of being able to pray for our children. So will you commit to pray regularly for your children? Yes, we will. So you're their teachers, you're their advocates, and you're also their models. And it doesn't take many months into a kid's life to realize that they're watching us and that they're, they're emulating us and doing the things that we do. So will you commit to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ? All right. And now, to everyone else in this room, if you, if you are a part of the church, then you are a part of the support team for these families, and as well as for other families. And these families are standing before you here, not just to make this public commitment, but just the act of standing up here is an acknowledgement that godly children are not just raised in isolation. It, it really takes the church. So over the years, many of you will have opportunities to encourage and to serve the families up here on stage as you participate in church life. And so my question for all of you is, will you commit to help these families as God gives you the opportunity? All right, well, let's pray. God, we thank you so much uh, for these families up here and for their commitment to to doing what you've called them to do, to raising godly children. And God, we pray that as they do this, that you would just provide the protection that is necessary. Um, There are many obstacles and many opponents to this task that they have set out to do, that we have set out to do. And God, we, uh, we need, we need your protection from those obstacles, from those <laughs> dangers as we move forward. God, I pray that you would, um, open up their hearts to know you at an early age. God, I pray that you would help them, give them sharp minds to, um, to understand, uh, the gospel, to understand what, what you did, uh, by sending your son Jesus to die for their sins. And, um, God, I pray that you would open up their hearts in a way that only you can, um, that is something that, that we, we wholly look to you to do and to, to um, give them wisdom to understand the teaching that they will receive. God, we pray that uh, fo- both for parents and for kids, that you would give them the courage to do what is right, to stand strong against temptation. And God, we also just pray for the marriages that are represented here. Um, we pray that they would be a strong foundation for, for these little ones as they, as they grow, that, um, that you would just bless these marriages and that they would honor you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys can go ahead and take a seat. (laughs) Well, as they make their way off stage, you can go ahead and um, take out your phone. Just make sure that it is, in fact, on silent, and you can also take out your message insert as Bevan continues our message series, Heroes.
1: Too few characters out there, flying around like that, saving old girls like me. Lord knows, kids like Henry need a hero. Courageous, self-sacrificing people, setting examples for all of us. Everybody loves a hero
0: that keeps us honest, gives us strength, makes
1: us noble. And Happy Father's Day, good to see you today. We are looking at some of the heroes in the Bible in this series to consider what they did that was heroic and how we might learn from them. Today's hero is Joseph, and Joseph is the example of the endurance that is required to succeed. I think if there's one word that describes best what we really all want in life, it's this word "success." Uh, if you're a dad, you want your kids to succeed. You want your grandkids to succeed. Uh, if you're married. You want your marriage to succeed. If you're in a career, uh, you really want that career to succeed. Uh, If you're planning for retirement and you've got some investments, it would be really helpful if those investments would succeed. If you're part of a church like this, you want that church to succeed. Simply put, we weigh our days on the scale of success and failure. And the question we're going to address this morning is, what can we do to tip the scales more towards the success side and away from the failure side. Well, what if we just declared that from this point forward, failure is not an option? That's a phrase that's used a lot. It was popularized, popularized by the uh, mission chief, Gene um, Kranz statement during the Apollo 13 mission, published a book by that same name where he announced to his team when they were trying to bring the astronauts home safely after the explosion on the Apollo 13 that failure just was not an option. Lives were at stake and they couldn't fail, and amazingly, it worked for them. So that's become a phrase in our culture uh, to indicate that we're really serious about success. Failure is just not an option for us. In fact, presidents recently have decided to use this phrase. President Bush said it about uh, Iraq when we went into uh, that war. President Obama said it about the health care bill, failure is just not an option, Then back in March, I think for the first time, President Trump used it about the opioid epidemic when he was talking about that challenge in our culture, and he said, you know, failure just isn't an option. But when it comes to just even these three statements, you look back, and I don't think anyone considers Iraq to be a success. Uh, Obamacare was passed into law, but, boy, our health care problems persist. Even today on the front page of the Orange County Register is a story about the challenges of the emergency room situation that the Obamacare law was supposed to fix, and it's actually gotten worse. So that hasn't been fixed. And when it comes to the opioid addiction problem, boy, we are a long ways away from anything close to success on that challenge. And so whether it's a president or whether it's us just as normal individual people, we all seem to lack the power to single-handedly bring about the success that we want in any area of life. But the Apollo 13 story and many other stories like that that we hear of success lead us to believe that success is something that's just out there. And if we could just reach and try hard enough and put enough effort, we, we can grab a hold of it and we can succeed. Now, what we tend to not realize is that between us and that success that's out there, there is an intermediary. There's someone between us and that success. And that someone is God. God. He is the one who grants success. One of the greatest stories in the Bible, I think, is the story we're considering today, the story of Joseph. It's probably the greatest success story in the Bible. Uh, He went from being the 11th of 12 sons in a pretty much unknown segment of the culture to being the second most powerful man in the world behind only Pharaoh. I mean, his rise to power was something that no one would have imagined. And in Genesis 39, verse 3 through 4, we read this at one point in Joseph's story. It says, when his master, Joseph's master, saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Now, if this was the only verse that you read about Joseph's life story, you would think that his life was just one big rising arc of success. I mean, this is what it says. God gave him success in everything he did. Well, the way we would plot that on a graph would be just better and better and higher and higher. But when this verse was written, it was written right after Joseph had been sold into slavery. The master is literally his owner. And his life was on a downward track at this point. Actually, it got a lot worse from this point. His graph was heading this way, not heading up. As I said, no one could have predicted as they watched Joseph's life continue to go down that this was the path of success. It didn't look successful at all. So how did it happen? Well, God's part in this success story was by granting success. God managed the path that led to success. Joseph's part in this success story, like in the stories that God is writing in our lives, was all about patient endurance. Not just sitting around waiting for God to do something passively, but enduring, continuing to be faithful in whatever responsibilities and sphere of influence that God had given Joseph at that time. Patient endurance. Galatians 6 verse 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We think of success in our culture kind of as an assembly line. You know, there's different pieces of success. Maybe if we, you know, get the, the right education, then we add to that the right job opportunity, and then we get, you know, the right marriage, and then if we have kids that are, you know, good. and We add all these pieces together that maybe by the end of the assembly line of time, we can end up with a life that is successful. If we get all the pieces and assemble a life correctly, then we can have success by the end of our life. But God says in this verse that success is, really, it's more like farming. It's not a production line. You keep planting good seeds, and then you weed those seeds and you water those seeds and you spend a lot of time waiting for the harvest of success. Now, I think the biggest challenge in this verse, is the phrase, at the proper time. I mean, if we knew when the proper time was. If God said, look, you do this, and in four years, you're going to experience a lot of success. Well, we could wait four years. But the seeds that God asks us to plant don't have dates on them. It doesn't say that you will see the results of this good decision at this date. All it says is, at the proper time, there will be, be a harvest. The thing you don't want to do is give up before that time. See, we, this is why we become weary in doing good. It doesn't seem to be working. We're, we think we're doing the right thing. We know we're not perfect, but we're, we're planting good seeds. But life doesn't seem to be getting any better. In fact, kind of like Joseph, sometimes it just seems to be getting worse and worse. So we tend to give up. We, we get weary in doing good. But what's going on in the middle of this before the harvest time is God is growing something on the inside, below the surface of the soil that no eye can see. And it's this invisible growth in us that really is the key to the way God views success. And that requires endurance for us in the two major areas of life. First, in our accomplishments, and then second, in our relationships. And we're going to look at both of these this morning. So let's begin by looking at endurance in your accomplishments, this is endurance in what you do, your work, your areas of responsibility. You know, the desire to succeed arises for all of us out of a deep sense that we're supposed to do something important with our lives. And so we dream about the accomplishments that, that might mark our success. And we are right to dream. God does have big plans for us. He did create us to do something important with our lives. We're not just here to patiently mark time and then disappear. But all of us learned pretty early on that it's one thing to dream big about success, and it's another thing to pull it off, to accomplish it. Now, Joseph had some pretty big dreams about his own future. And they weren't just kind of like our dreams are sometimes, just his own thoughts about what he might want to accomplish. Now, these were actual dreams that God gave him that painted a picture of the future that God said he would have. Here's what it says about Joseph's two dreams in Genesis 37, 5 through 11. It says, first of all, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. You'll understand when you hear the dreams. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheave rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. That's going to go good with the brothers. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he'd said. Well, then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. You hear them say, oh, great. (laughs) And this time, the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now you have to understand that in the ancient world, birth order meant much more than it does now. It was the firstborn son that would inherit the family estate. The other siblings would then take their position and serve under the eldest son. So Joseph was the 11th Of 12 sons. So you can see why these two dreams caused such a tremendous stir. The only way that you could advance your position in the family order was if a sibling older than you died. So when Joseph told them these two dreams, it would be heard in this time and culture as really a threat. You add this to the fact that Joseph was clearly their father's favorite. And all the brothers knew this. And they decided collectively that it was time to respond to this threat of Joseph's dream. So a few verses later, we read this in 17 through 20, Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dotham. He was looking for where they were tending their sheep. But when they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of all of his dreams. But Reuben, who is the eldest son, he convinces them to sell Joseph to a passing caravan instead. Reuben realizes that it would be better for Joseph to be sold into slavery than for Joseph to be dead. And the other brothers, because of his position, agree to do that. In this moment, begins a 16-year series of dream-shattering setbacks for Joseph. He went from one disaster to another. It just got worse and worse. The graph of his life, as I said, was not heading towards his dream. It was heading away from his dream, downward. So why would God give Joseph two dreams about his future success and then allow him to experience 16 years of failure? Why? Well, it was because, just like us, Joseph had to learn what real success is. Our idea of success is very different than what God's idea of success is. And we really don't learn what God thinks of success until our own dreams die. Like Joseph, we tend to think of success as a destination that we arrive at, you know, a a point in time in the future. And we imagine it in many different ways. I mean, for Joseph, the image was of individuals bowing before him, representing his authority. Now, as I said, that wasn't just Joseph's idea. That was a dream that God gave him. But that was a a moment in time, an image, a dream with visual timestamp on it about Joseph's success. We have different images. Maybe it's a financial destination. Maybe it's a physical destination. We want to buy a house somewhere and move somewhere, and if we can get there and retire with enough money, well, then finally we will have succeeded. Whatever, maybe it's a marriage destination if you're not married, and, boy, if I could just marry the right person, that, that would be successful. Or maybe if you're not able to have kids, if I could have kids, that would be successful. On and on it goes. And these destinations are not wrong. The challenge is we tend to think of success in terms of an image and a time, a destination. But once we arrive at our destinations, the clock of our life is still running. Time is still going forward. And the question now is, now what? This is why one of the most interesting things is people who are tremendously successful often report that they really struggle emotionally because they've, Sometimes early in life, they've accomplished all that they ever set out to accomplish, and they're 30 or they're 40, and now what? This is one of the challenges in retirement. Okay, so you accomplished that. Now what? Now what do you do with your life? And so for us, success tends to be a moment in time with a picture, a destination. But for God, it's a process. The Hebrew word for success in the Bible means to push forward. It's about movement, not destination. The marker of success is not our current circumstance, but whether or not we are moving in the right direction. We could have just experienced a tremendous personal setback, but if we get back up and we start moving right away in the next direction, God says, that in my book is success but everything is falling apart. I, I know, but you're moving in the right direction. That's what the Hebrew word for success means. You're, you're pushing forward. The English word carries a lot of this idea. The English word for success means to follow. It doesn't mean to arrive. Again, it implies movement. In fact, that's you know, our word successor. The root of that is success, but a successor is what? It's someone who follows after another carries the idea of the English word for success, which is to follow. So the real question of success is, are you moving? And are you moving in the right direction, which is, who are you following? Real success occurs when we decide to follow God. No matter what the trappings of our circumstance looks like when We stand up and we get our compass back out and we set it towards what God says is right and we start moving. We start following. That is successful. Now, the reason God defines success this way is because of who we are. We are eternal beings made in his image. We have a soul that goes on forever. That's the core of who we are. What that means is we really don't have a finish line to our life. Our life is never truly over. It has two spans to it, but it doesn't end. There's a short span to our life. That's the one we're living in right now. That is marked by time. It may be a 40-year span. It may be an 80-year span. But it's marked by a beginning, a birthday, and an end, a death day. The long span, though, is an eternal one. It has no end. Now, the short span of our life sets the framework for the long span of our life. So if we're going to succeed, not only in this life, but in the one to come, our focus is going to have to be on becoming a successor, on on moving in the right direction, a follower of God, more than on becoming just a short-term personal success in some moment of time. That's why even the greatest moments of success are just never enough for the human soul because our life goes on. I always question this, well, then now what? What next? So God says, you need to look at success as moving forward after, after me in the right direction, not the circumstance. And so failure comes to reveal our motives. Whenever we experience failure in our accomplishments, what God is doing in that moment is he's pushing the motives of our heart to the surface. It tells us who we are following and if we're really following anyone at all. You know, The word motive means to move. Motivation is the fuel that drives the movement of our life. It drives every move that we make. It is the why behind the what. So we think of success as the what, and God thinks of success as the movement, the why. What is it that's moving you? Forward in the right direction. Now, like fuel in our car, we don't really think about our motives until we run out of it, till we run out of gas, and we lose the motivation to keep going. And this is what failure does: is it it tests the quality of our fuel, it tests the quality of our motives. What what's driving us to keep moving through life? And there are two basic motivations. There's several formulations of each, but. The two basic motivations are selfish ambition and love. These are the two sources of fuel that move us through life. Selfish ambition is, its real. I'm not following anyone. It's just what I want and what I think is successful. Love, well, that involves other people. It's, it's in the context of a community of other people, and that moves us forward. So when our accomplishments fail... Selfish ambition lacks the power often to keep us moving because, well, we failed. There's no perceived benefit to keep moving in this area. It didn't work. It failed. It dropped. So why keep doing this? Selfish motivation, we just have to change. Now I've got to have a different selfish goal. I've got to set a different goal to keep me moving. Love has more power than selfishness. Love gives us a deeper reason why. If we're trying to accomplish something because we love our family and want to provide for them, that'll keep us moving even through many setbacks because love is a more powerful motive. If we love the people we're working with, we can keep going longer in the face of failure. But while human love is a more powerful motive than selfishness, it also has its limits. It can only move us so far. You know, some of us, let's say, have a 10-gallon tank of natural love and some are more loving. They got a 20 gallon tank. Some are, some are even more than that. But we all get to the point where uh, we just run out of gas. We run out of love. And that's because there are holes that keep being punched in our motivational gas tank. And the holes are the way people are, the way they treat us. See, not only do we encounter failure in our accomplishments, we also encounter it in our relationships. I mean, it is a blow to our motivation when we fail in what we're trying to do, but it's devastating when we are failed by someone that we love. So in order to keep moving, we have to have a fuel source, an an endurance why, a motive that is deeper than just selfish ambition and deeper than natural human love. And that brings us to the second important question aspect of success that is required, and that is endurance in your relationships. Not only did Joseph's dream of what he was to accomplish shatter, but everyone he loved and ever got close to failed him. First, it was his brothers. We read about that. You know, being failed by family, you know, is the deepest blow to our love motive. In fact, it's why many individuals decide pretty early on in life that They really can't trust anyone. They really can't love anyone that selfish ambition is really the only thing that they can count on. But instead of giving up after his brothers sold him into slavery, Joseph worked diligently to be faithful to his new owner, Potiphar. And because of his diligence, and as we read in that verse, God granting Joseph success, Joseph rose eventually to be in charge of all of Potiphar's house, but then he was betrayed again, this time by Potiphar's wife and by Potiphar. Apparently, Joseph had the looks of success to go along with the dreams of success, and so Potiphar's wife took notice of his physical appearance and tried to seduce him. And after Joseph repeatedly refused her, finally in frustration and anger, she accused Joseph of rape. Well, who are you going to believe? The wife of a powerful man, a merchant of his day, or a slave? Well, the wife was believed by Potiphar, and Joseph was immediately sent to prison. Joseph, after all that he had done, after all how he had faithfully served Potiphar, he was failed by him and by his wife. But again, instead of giving up, Joseph did in prison pretty much what he did in slavery. He took whatever responsibility he was given and he diligently endured and served the prison warden. And so, in time, the warden grew to trust Joseph, just like Potiphar had grown to trust Joseph. And he eventually Put Joseph in charge of the entire prison, like he had been entire in charge of Potiphar's entire estate. now granted it's still a move down you know to, to to be in charge of a prison as a prisoner is not near as good as being in charge of an estate as a servant. But while Joseph was in prison, he got to know a couple of high ranking officials in Pharaoh's court who were there because they had offended Pharaoh now. Whenever Pharaoh got offended by someone serving him in his court uh, and they went to jail, often they, they were never seen from again. And these two are in prison, pretty much awaiting execution. And they each had a dream about their future, a dream that was, again, vivid and clear and seemed to be more than just a normal dream. And they were telling their dream to, dreams to people, and Joseph God had given Joseph the ability to interpret dreams, not only his own dream, but to interpret dreams like these. And so Joseph was able to interpret their dreams for them and tell them, one, the good news that they would be restored, and the other, the bad news that they would not be restored to Pharaoh. And eventually, what Joseph said based on the dreams happened. And the one that was sent restored back to Pharaoh's court, his last words to Joseph was, I'll I'll never forget you. And one of the first things that I will do is I will bring your case before Pharaoh. And I will do what I can to see that you get justice. For two years, Joseph waited and continued to languish in prison. And nothing was done to help Joseph. Now, we don't know whether this guy honestly forgot or whether he never really intended to take the risk of bringing a case before Pharaoh right after he had just been restored himself. It's probably that reason. But again, this was yet another failure. Someone that had promised Joseph that they would take his case to Pharaoh didn't. So you just have to put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Up to this point, Joseph's life was nothing but failure and being failed. Every time he rose in position, someone stabbed him in the back. Someone failed him. His life kept getting worse and worse and worse. So the the question you have to ask is, why did he keep going? And not just, like, not kill himself, but why did he keep going with such endurance and faithfulness to whatever task that was before him? What was the fuel in his tank? What was his motivation? It certainly wasn't selfish ambition. Nothing about his own dreams were working out. And human love would have never been enough to keep him going for 16 long years of failure and being failed. Well, there are two times when we get a pretty good look into Joseph's motivational gas tank. The first look occurs in something that Joseph said in response to Potiphar's wife's advances to him. Here's what he says in Genesis 39.9. He says, My master, speaking of Potiphar, has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So what you see here is a couple of things. First, you see a a genuine loyalty to his master. Joseph was a loyal follower. What he's saying to his master's wife is, how could I betray my master? My master has entrusted everything to me, and you're the only thing that's off bounds in his entire estate. I'm not going to betray my master. But there was a deeper love than just human love. Joseph wasn't just following Potiphar. He was following God in this. There's a deeper love for God. As he says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? What really fueled Joseph's life was a love for God. That's who he was really, really following. In the middle of all of the people, in the middle of all the circumstances, Joseph continued to move towards the God who loved him and who he loved. That's what was in his motivational gas tank. But the question you have to answer is, how did Joseph hang on to the reality of God's love for him when his life was going so badly? I mean, to even the casual observer, it sure didn't look like God loved Joseph that much, right? I mean, if God loved Joseph, why are things going so bad? Why doesn't he protect him? It looked like God gave Joseph the two dreams of greatness only to crush his expectations. So why did Joseph keep drawing on God's love for him to fuel his endurance? This is an important question to answer because we may not face the level of disaster that Joseph did, but we face the same kind of things. Something we're trying to accomplish fails, or at least doesn't look like it's going to happen. Someone that we love fails us, and we wonder, God, why? What is it that will keep us moving forward? when everything around us looks like it's fallen apart. Well, we see this why in the second glimpse into Joseph's motivational gas tank. And I think this is the most powerful scene in the story. So let me set it up. 16 long years after Joseph is sold into slavery, Pharaoh himself has a dream. And the dream is, again, it's so vivid and so disturbing that Pharaoh knows something important is being told to me in this dream. And so he begins to search for someone who can interpret the dream. And no one can. I mean, he searches all the wise people in his court and beyond, and no one can explain to him what this dream might mean. Finally, the man who had been in prison with Joseph and who had had his dream interpreted and had seen that it had worked out exactly as Joseph said, decided either he remembered or he decided, okay, now I can take the risk to bring this before him. But he mentions Joseph to Pharaoh and explains what had happened to him and said, you know, Joseph may be able to interpret your dream. So Joseph is cleaned up, dressed up, and brought before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him his dream, and God helps Joseph understand what the dream means. And he tells Pharaoh that this dream is a warning, that a massive, Famine is about to hit, and it's going to hit in seven years, and it's going to last for seven years, but the seven years before that famine is going to be seven years of abundance, and so you need to prepare and store up food so that people won't starve for the seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh decides that there would be no one better to oversee this project than Joseph, the one who had told him what the dream meant. So in one day, Joseph goes from prison. I mean, he wasn't even presentable. He had to be cleaned up, probably perfumed up, dressed up, and brought before Pharaoh's court. And one day, Joseph goes from prisoner to the second most powerful person in Egypt, and therefore the entire world at the time, in charge of preparing for the famine. Well, after seven years of getting ready for it, the famine finally arrives. In the first year or two, everything's okay, but eventually everyone's food stocks are out, and the only people that have food are is the government, really, of Egypt. So the famine arrives, and people from other nations begin arriving to Egypt, begging for food to keep their families alive. And Joseph is in charge of all of this distribution. And so Joseph's brothers arrive also, begging for food from Egypt, and they're brought before Joseph ask for food to feed their starving families, and they don't recognize Joseph. It's been 16 years, and I'm sure in all of his royal Egyptian garb, he looked like something they never expected him to look like, so they don't recognize him. Now, you could not ask for a more perfect moment of revenge, right? Well, you can't write a movie this good. This, this is like, this is your chance. You've got all the power. They have none. But instead of exacting revenge, Joseph eventually breaks down in tears. In fact, he cries so loudly, Scripture reports that uh, his crying is heard outside of his court area in his house, and word goes back to Pharaoh that something's going on in Joseph's house. That's how loud he was crying. And he reveals to his brothers who he is. Now, they're terrified. They assume that they're about to get the long overdue judgment that they all deserve. In fact, as Joseph listens to them in their conversation, they've been feeling the guilt of what they did to Joseph for 16 years. And now they see him, and they know judgment's coming. But here's what Joseph says, and this is the second look into the motivational tank of Joseph. Genesis 50, 19 through 20, But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. That's obvious. That's obvious. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now just think about that statement in light of the facts of Joseph's story. You intended to harm me, but God intended to do not only me good, but a lot of people good. So in every one of those moves that was harmful to me, God I knew God had a plan. I knew that there was something good that was going to come out of this. Joseph interpreted every personal failure he faced. Now, I don't know if he interpreted it in the moment, but eventually this was his perspective, that every failure they encountered, every person who failed him was not an indication of God's intention to do him harm, that God doesn't love him anymore. No, this was an indication of God's intention to do him good. He just couldn't see how that plan was going to work out. So for us, whenever we encounter failure or we are failed by someone, it's critical that we have the same perspectives that Joseph had on the failure. And there are really three perspectives that are, that are important for us to grasp, and I just want to list them as we begin to wrap up. The first here is failure is not personal, it's positional. Here's what I mean. Whenever we encounter a failure moment. It's often God moving us to where we need to be in order for his larger plan to unfold. We think it's personal. We think they're picking on us, God's picking on us, but often, and what God is doing is he's just getting us in position for a larger plan. To us, it looks like a move back, to God, it's just, it's just a move with five or six other moves that will eventually get us where we need to be. You see, if a seven-year famine is coming and lots of people are going to die, there was only one nation on the planet at this time in history that had the resources to prepare for a seven-year famine. Only Egypt had the resources to build the vast storage containers that would be required to to go for 7 years, not just for Egypt, but for the nations around them. Only well, Egypt had those kind of resources. So God had to get Joseph from Palestine to Egypt. Well, slavery was the means of transportation. I mean, slavery was looked like a huge setback, but God was moving Joseph to where he needed him to be. But it wasn't enough just for Joseph to be hanging around in Egypt, he had to be in a position to begin to enact this plan and tell Pharaoh this is what's coming so that people could be saved. Because only Pharaoh had the power to leverage the resources of Egypt to do this vast preparation work. So how is a slave who's now in the right place ever going to get an audience with Pharaoh? That would never happen. So God put Joseph in prison. And in prison, an introduction was made. To a member of Pharaoh's court. And when that member returned to Pharaoh's court and God gave Pharaoh the dream, now all of a sudden in one day, Joseph's got an audience with the number one guy in the world. I mean, you can't plan that. I can't plan that. That's, that's high-level planning. That's God-level planning. But you see, we, we think, and this is the second point, failure is not individual, it's communal. We think so individually. We, we think that everything in life is about me and my success or my failure. And it's just, it's just so much bigger than that. There's a community around us. There are people around us. As, it's, as, it, as Joseph said, it wasn't just to accomplish good for me. It was to accomplish the saving of many lives. In order for God to use your life to save many other lives, you and I are going to have to go through some setbacks to get in the right position, to be in a place where we can really be used by God to influence other people. So failure, we tend to take it so, pur- it's just, it's, it's, oh, I am failing. It's like No, what, what is God's plan? There, there's, it's, it's about more than just me, it's communal. And then the third perspective that's so important is failure is not final, it's just one piece. You know, had a moment of failure, someone fails us, we'll say, you know, this always happens. Or, or we fail in something we're trying to accomplish. And it just we draw the bottom line and says, you know, I'm just a failure. No, this just didn't work out. It's not final. I mean, what if Joseph had run out of motivational gas and decided to give up two days before his promotion? What if he decided to hang himself in that prison? After 16 years, he had decided, you know what? That dream was a lie. Everything, every indication of my life is that God is against me, circumstantially. What if he had just given up? What if there hadn't been a, a deeper motivational gas tank to keep him going? He, he would have never experienced what God intended to do through his life, the saving of many people. We think that if someone loves us, they should give us what they can to make us happy in the moment. And so when we encounter difficulties, we just can't understand why a God who loves us wouldn't come rushing to our immediate aid. But we have to understand, God's love is always attached to God's plan. We tend to think of them separately. We think of God's love as God is just going to let my life just be one blissed-out experience of of greatness. If He loves me, that's what He'll do. And then He's got this plan over here. Who knows what He's doing over here, but He's over here loving me, right? No, 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 God's plan and God's love always come together. And it's not just about us. It's about more than us. He's up to something good, but not until the whole plan is final will we see its brilliance. So until then, what do we need to do? Endure. We we just have to keep moving forward in the right direction. As it says in Genesis 50, 20, You, Joseph says to his brothers, intended to harm me, and boy, they sure did. But God intended it for good. And who wins? God wins. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this perspective that elevates our own perspective on our failures and the people who failed us we tend to get in the trenches of our own life and measure it by the successes or the failures of the moment but you see all of eternity stretch out and you see your plan stretch out and you see our part in it and how you want to use us to save not just ourselves but many people so God I pray that in the moments of setback and failure, you'd help us to endure. You'd help us to see that your intentions toward us are still good and that your love for us is still secure. I pray for those in this room right now that are experiencing a relational setback or failure. Someone has betrayed them. God, I pray that they would draw on your love for you and just keep moving forward. Help us, we pray, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ethan?
0: Thank you, Bevan. You can go ahead and take your connection card back out from earlier. And if there's anything else that you want to check on there, make sure you...